Hello. 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 Oh, look, it's Andrew. Here I am. Hi. I had the sudden urge to say, hello, husband. <laughs> hello, wife. Uh, <laughs> hello, don't children. Love that. Hello, children. <laughs> that I actually don't dislike. Oh, okay. Hello, children. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Good-Looking People in Small Clever Rooms that utilize every centimeter of available space with mind-boggling efficiency. I'm Andrew, and I'm in Milwaukee right now, sans cats. It's troubling. I'm joined remotely this week by Brianna, who is in South Dakota with twice as many cats as usual per capita, which I can only assume is equally as troubling. Brianna, hello. Hi. <laughs> is, it, is it troubling? I, I am very troubled. I Good. have a drippy cat on my lap currently. It's excellent. I don't. She keeps flicking her tail as if I'm the problem here, and so that's that's also troubling. going to be a thing. And who knows what the other one is doing? Right. Oh, he's on the he's on the chair over here as a little ah, circle. Good. Uh, as always, we're joined by my mom Norma. Hello. And by our friend Vinny. Hi. So this chunk that we just read is. A lot of like political philosophy mm-hmm. on the ledge. We started on the ledge. Mm-hmm. Right. Did you notice that there Still. was talk about how they were like, "Oh, I don't know how the other one got down here." Blah blah blah. Right. <laughs> Probably <laughs> yeah. a helicopter, but who knows? Right. Yeah. So I was I was happy to hear that Steeply had the same questions as I have about mm-hmm. how Marat managed to get up there with the wheelchair. Yeah. yeah, it's both reassuring and also deeply troubling that <laughs> yeah. no one has a plan. Yeah. Yes. Although it's also, it, so it, it does yes. say that he doesn't know how Marat got up there, but he kind of chooses not to wonder about it because he says oh. that the the Office of Unspecified Services knows that the AFR has a penchant for showing off and they, they, they try not to feed them <laughs> when they do right. that. Right. We also hear more about about Marat's impressions of Steeply as uh, Helen. Mm-hmm. Yes. That, that the feet are really ugly. Mm-hmm. Right. Really oh, ugly feet. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think he describes them as looking like um, like loaves of bread that are yeah. being constricted by the straps of his shoes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They also talk about the Office of Unspecified Services or whatever it's called. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they that they sadistically make their agents be something that they are not when they're on field assignments. And that and not only that they're not, but that it will be really hard to be just because right. they're like this big guy yeah, is yeah, supposed that... to be this, this enchanting woman reporter or... A white guy is supposed to be black or... Uh, right, yeah, <laughs> that everybody kind of has a problem with disguise. Right. Which I wonder, does that make it better or worse? Yeah, Steve I don't know. I mean, well, there's fine. A, worse or it does better. Sound, it does sound to me like Steeply relishes the challenge. Yes, he actually says that. It says mm-hmm. that he feels he needs yeah. these extreme situations yeah. to really be a good 
undercover person. And they, they claim, don't they, that he's one of the best? Mm-hmm. That yes. Steeply is one of the best. And that he had his teeth pulled for... Uh, to, to dress oh, as a, a, a Hare Krishna or something yeah, like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something. I didn't really understand yeah. why that was necessary. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, beats me. Yeah, and I guess but when I'm asking disgusting. better or worse, I'm asking, does it justify them just not giving the Helen Steeply persona to a um, female identifying person? Oh, you mean you mean like less or more problematic from right our perspective. yeah i yeah. don't know i think it certainly does seem to just be their their mode of working um right so so I'm what's not sure. the point is that they they just like to be difficult or that they think i think you know that's that, the sense that i get about everything about the onan government is that mm-hmm. they they just do everything in the most complicated way possible um and I assume that that has something to do with sort of perpetuating their own system of bureaucracy and like justifying their own bureaucracy mm-hmm. um, more than ha- having anything to do with the results that it produces. Hmm. I mean, honestly, it just seems ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Why would they have mm-hmm. this big burly guy go undercover as a female reporter who's supposed to use her charms to, you know, worm her way into the good graces of her interviewees I, right, it's yeah. just so dumb <laughs> <laughs> and why in the world would you have someone undercover being a different race than they are it's just so yeah. it's just so dumb yeah it does seem like a recipe for being outed as yeah. an imposter yeah and it and makes it in a way, it makes everyone else seem dumb, too, because don't they see through these disguises? It makes, like, everybody that talks about how steep, uh, Helen is so charming, and uh, it's like, oh, come on! Mm-hmm. This, this, mm-hmm. this person can't be convincing as what he's claiming to be. So Steeply asks a question of Marat here that kind of kicks off this philosophical Big debate that's ultimately mm-hmm. over utilitarianism, as as Marat says. But the question itself is is an interesting one too. Um, he says the thing that that the Office of Unspecified Services is most troubled by about the AFR is that they're just aggressors and they don't seem to have any agenda beyond that aggression. Right. Mm-hmm. That they only I'm, want I'm to I'm wondering cause what, harm. what you make of that. Because I had I had problems swallowing that assertion. I when I read it, I immediately wrote in the margin, some people just want to watch the world burn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Just because, right? I can, I don't know, they seem, I could see them as being purely motivated by implementation of anarchy, especially if Onan is so much bureaucracy for bureaucracy's sake. Right. So, I don't know, (laughs) the, the, the antithesis of bureaucracy for bureaucracy's sake is anarchy for no reason. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it sounds bad to think that somebody is doing something solely to cause harm to someone else. 
like not even there's no reason at all just being mean right you're right. just being mean uh and beyond mean but is it really that much different to knowingly do something that's going to seriously harm somebody else because of your political beliefs yeah you know does that make it okay i mean stigley's yeah. kind of saying well if you if you were trying to kill off USAers with this entertainment thing that you've got out there in the world and you were doing it because because uh, you wanted independence you wanted independence instance. then it like, would be it, okay I think but he if says you it would, it would just, just it, be business so at it's that like point. it's like that whole argument of the ends justifying the means right, right. Mm-hmm. you know so when, that's, that's and and is that true do you think yeah. it's true I mean, well, that's, I one, that's one problem perspective, that I have. Freedom is the thing, and their USAers are going to do. Fr- <laughs> they're going to do freedom. They're going to do things for freedom and make that justify everything. Mm-hmm. Which is also yeah. interesting because Marat would say, "Well, so they're we're not making anybody. We're right. not making yes. anybody watch this. It's your freedom." It's your demand yeah. to be free to make all your choices that, okay, so you're free. Yeah. Here's this thing if you want to see it. Might kill you. So this, I, and I think <laughs> this, is, this is one Go of the things it, that, I, that I stumbled over <laughs> is like, or I don't, I don't know that I stumbled over it. I just, I think I fundamentally disagree with Steeply and it, I find it kind of surprising that Marat doesn't, take the bait of the argument that Steeply's making because um, the th- this thing that Steeply says about like we're, we're, we're troubled by you because you don't want an, you don't want anything from us other than for us to die basically is the, is the assertion that he's making mm-hmm. sounds a lot like it reminds me so much of the way that everyone in America talked about Al Qaeda after 9/11 that they hate us for our freedom and they only want to destroy us and they don't want right. anything else. Oh right, right. Which, um, you know, that's that's probably that's probably the image that they wanted to portray to the West. But I, it seems to me that there's not a lot of difference between Al Qaeda and other like anti-imperialist insurgencies that have existed in the past. Um, and, and, and the same is true for the AFR. Like they, they have kind of wacky methods sometimes like giant pies and big mirrors and things, but ultimately it seems like they're, it's an insurgency and maybe their aims are like, like maybe their violence seems less focused or concerted because their aims are so big. Like it's, it seems particularly unattainable from this point in the story that Quebec would ever be independent. Right. Mm -hmm. There's, there's so many layers of bureaucracy that prevent that, that it seems like they're just kind of lashing out at the bureaucracy and the system as a whole. It also strikes me that the reason or one of the reasons why American politicians, but journalists like media commentators too were were so like performatively baffled by the aims of al-qaeda post 9-11 is that to acknowledge that they had real geopolitical aims that were understandable would have been 
a blow to our pride. And so hmm. it, it's, it's like to our political advantage to pretend that they're incoherent. I think that's a really good point in, in this book too. And, and uh, that we don't want to know. We want, we want to be great and we see ourselves as good and mm-hmm. free and, and the best. We see ourselves as the best. And so, yeah. so you can't acknowledge that somebody really truly has a beef with you because you're the best and you're good. And so why would they have, if they have a beef with you, it's because there's yeah, something wrong with them. It's because they're bad and they hate goodness. It's they're bad, right, and they right. hate goodness. I liked Marat's uh, statement about the USA has previously been hated richly so. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I really like that. This is I, I, Vinny. Do you know anything about the Shining Path's relation to Maxwell House? I was trying. I did a little googling to was try and figure a, this out, and I couldn't find anything. So the Shining a, Path was a like was communist a insurgency in Peru, but I couldn't find any direct connection between them and and Maxwell House or even coffee more generally. Hmm. Yeah, I I don't know. But, I don't um, know either. And yeah. they, it, it does like I can fill in that story. It sounds again. to me like a like a, a dole fruit company. The government is overthrowing other foreign governments to help private industry. Right. Thing. Yeah. But I don't know if that ever actually happened. Yeah. Or if that's what's being implied here. I kind of take it as a similar thing as you, Andrew. That uh, I kind of disagree with Steepley's entire assertion that the AFR has no political gains, because so far from what we know about the AFR, they do seem to have pretty coherent goals. Yeah. Like, or they have a goal, which is to separate Quebec from Onan, and to... I'm a little unclear whether they want the uh, concavity slash convexity, or whether they want it to remain in Onan. Um, I, think but, they, I think they want it to be the United States's responsibility. Yeah. That's my yeah, understanding of their so. position. Yeah. Yeah. That would make the most sense. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Trash and swarms of angry hamsters, and weird yeah, giant toddlers. And yeah. Yes. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, they've got pretty clear goals. And it seems like their methods aren't unusual for a separatist insurgency. Especially like in the world that's created in this book. I mean, their right. their means would be weird if they started doing it in our world. But, but you know, the, like... I mean, I mean the, the specifics of their... Atta- like, the methods of their attacks are odd, but the way, the way they're targeting people doesn't seem that odd. I think there's actually... There are parallels to the IRA. Hmm. Um, and and those sort of like distributed small bombings as a thing that they did to to sow chaos and to like to reinforce the idea that as long as they were part of this political system they would be ungovernable. Yeah. Yeah. So then th- this gives way to this like discussion of uh, well, it gives way to a metaphor about soup. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which I bet you really enjoyed i i loved all the i loved the soup discourse in this chapter of course you did Uh, (laughs) particularly the fact that it's pea soup something about that i find really funny yeah um yeah although as they say that's like a that's a favorite dish in quebec is is this pea soup yeah the Um, abitant before we move on 
earlier, I had the question of is steeply racist. Oh, what what uh, brings up that question? Um, so, oh, wait, he uses some some yeah. slurs, doesn't he? Yeah, he uses a lot that. of slurs, <laughs> and it's rough. I'm just going to jump right in and ramble for a bit, probably. But uh, but there you go. But this question itself shows how our different types of national character part ways from each other. I mean, the American genius, our good fortune, is that someplace along the line back there in American history, them realizing that each American seeking to pursue his maximum good results together in maximizing everyone's good. Uh, which kind of, uh, to me, is in a way... A especially you know in light of our current situation and everything, sort of in a way um, a conversation on policing uh, that yeah. uh, this view of well the police are good to one person and so therefore it must be good for all people, uh, which is kind of a racist belief. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know that I read that statement as particularly racist, although I did highlight it, and I, I think yeah. it, it reminded me kind of like Ayn Rand novels or or social Darwinism or something. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. This definitely sets off some alarm bells. My read on Steeply is that he's not like an angry, overt racist, but I do think that he's been indoctrinated by the racist language of this racist system that he works for and that he really believes in. Um, right. You know, and I think that maybe he's an object lesson in how you can't believe in a racist system and not yourself be kind of transformed into a racist. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I had a question from the previous page about mm-hmm. whether we all think that Steeply's description of what Americans, what Americans want mm, is, yeah. is accurate. Do you think that's uh, an accurate depiction of us as Americans? Choice, what we a want? sense of efficaciousness and choice to be loved by someone, to freely love when you happen to love, the, the uh, access to transport, good digestion, Tested frozen by yogurt. Time, uh, relative plenty, meaningful work, adequate leisure time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, plus a whole bunch of other things that kind of give us a glimpse into Steepley's personal life, like a wife who doesn't mistake your job's requirements for your own fetishes and things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To feel valued, not to be agendalessly despised. There's that whole that that you know. Don't. Why are you do? Why are you doing these right, hateful right. things? Just just out of hate. And it's like we're the good guys here. Why would you? Right. You know, mm-hmm. you, you can't just hate us for no reason when we're so good. Pride in your work and family. I'm glad you brought this list up because I think it is a is a pretty fun list. Like it, any the the project of defining the American dream ever, right. I always right. find kind of amusing. Yeah. Um, but this one in particular reminded me a lot of a uh, a Radiohead song that came out not long after this uh, book called hmm. um, Fitter Happier off of OK Computer. And it's a, a spoken word track. It's actually recited by a digital voice, by like a computer synthesized voice. Huh. Um, no. I, I just want to read you a little bit of it because I, I think it, it feels like this list could become that list. Fitter, happier, more productive, comfortable, not drinking too much, regular exercise at the gym three days a week, getting on better with your associate employee contemporaries, at ease, eating well, no more microwave dinners and saturated fats, 
a patient better driver, a safer car, baby smiling in back seat, sleeping well, no bad dreams, no paranoia, careful to all animals, never washing spiders down the plug hole, keep in contact with old friends, enjoy a drink now and then, will frequently check credit at moral bank hole in wall, favors for favors, fond but not in love, charity standing orders, on Sunday's Ring Road supermarket, no killing moths or putting boiling water on the ants, car wash also on Sundays, no longer afraid of the dark. And it goes Sunsets like over that. the Pacific, shoes that don't cut off circulation, frozen yogurt, yeah. a tall lemonade on a squeak-free porch swing. It does. Mm-hmm. It sounds like the same. It sounds like the same. It, yeah. This mix of, of sort of like banal platitudes and sentimental political ideology. Mm-hmm. Poem that I wrote. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to share? Uh, oh, um, I wrote I wrote a poem that I struggled to title for a very long time, and I just ended up calling it the first line that I had been using over and over. And mm-hmm. um, it's called "This poem is not about you," and it's uh, just a list of all the things that the poem is not about, uh, mm. with mixing uh-huh. in little uh, vignettes of memories of this person that this poem isn't actually about but the poem is actually about that person so <laughs> uh this these two lists remind me of that poem in that I, we're talking about freedom but we're not really talking about freedom we're talking about choice but we're not really talking about choice the yeah. list has frozen yogurt Ooh. in it but we're not right. talking about frozen yogurt right mm-hmm which I find really interesting. Then Marat comes back with high quality entertainment, high value for the dollar of leisure and spectation. Yeah. Yeah. Although yeah. first, uh, Marat says the most truthful thing that I think we all want, which is the loyalty of a domain pet. Oh yes, absolutely. Yes. Although I don't know, I don't know if loyalty is the word I would use. Yeah. Um, okay. I, don't I, th- know. I think like 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 mutual love or something. Yeah. Mutual caring. Mm-hmm. I think loyalty is the best the domestic pet can do. Mm, I don't know. I, I, I kind of right. like a pet to be a little disloyal some days. Right. I'm not sure my pets are loyal. I don't yeah. know what they are. I, but I, I, I want a pet that can call me out on my bullshit. <laughs> That's what you have me for. Listen, I'm just saying that very clearly sometimes the cats are telling us that things are unfair and wrong. And, and that they don't stand with us. They stand yeah. across the abyss. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and you know what? Sometimes they're usually, I usually disagree with them, but sometimes they're right. Murat also says, uses the French, the utili- is it utilitarianism? Yeah, he's talking about utilitarianism uh, here. Maximize, maximize pleasure, pleasure, minimize displeasure. displeasure. Yeah. What is good? Result, what is good? That's us. Mm-hmm. Is that yeah. is that human? Is that just a hu- human nature? Or is that uniquely well, American? Well, no. I, I mean, I is think that, that a uniquely American thing. I, I don't think it's uniquely American. I forget. Do you know Vinny, who was the progenitor of utilitarianism? Was that oh. Like, oh, okay. Oh, Jeremy yeah. Bentham founded utilitarianism. Okay, hey, yes. Our friend, isn't there a friend? The, 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 the mummy. He's the he's the mummy uh, at, at the college in in England. Yeah. I'm glad yeah. he's come back. Me too. I really okay. So this changes things because I really like Jeremy Bentham. I'm I'm a little lukewarm on the concept of utilitarianism, but mm-hmm. Jeremy Bentham he invented jogging, um, oh. and 
Yeah, he, he called it, uh, I think he called it postprandial circumgyration. He was going to go for, like, speed walks around his estate after dinner. After um, dinner? Well, then point of order, speed walking is not jogging. Well, yeah, it was... Yeah. I, so he invented speed walking. Jogging and speed like walking. He, yeah, like, as, as, as a mode of ex- exercise. Although I think he th- thought of it as more as spiritual exercise than as physical hmm. exercise. Uh-huh. He was also big on the idea of uh, he. He thought that we should all decorate our yards with mummies. Uh, Ooh, yeah. And, uh, and, and when was he, he alive? Seventeen forty-eight to eighteen thirty-two in London. Oh, okay, all right. What a um, gem. Yeah, yeah. And, he's and a little he, early on the um, mummy fest. Yeah. That was, yeah, uh, well, yeah. I don't. I don't know that he was interested in like Egyptian mummies. He just thought that bodies should be dead bodies should be preserved and displayed as like a friendly reminder that we'll all be corpses eventually. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. And, and uh, well, again, then he practiced what he preached and had that done to himself. Oh, good. So yeah. Oh, also re- widely regarded as one of the earliest proponents of animal rights. Oh, he argued and believed that the ability to suffer, not the ability to reason should be the benchmark of what, or what he called the insuperable line. Hmm. Huh. I think that seems fair. And that is so interestingly, just following this this stream of consciousness, that brings me to consider the lobster, David Foster yeah. Wallace's uh, oh, perfect. really lovely essay in like it's is it from like Cooks and Cooking magazine or something like that? He was commissioned to cover a lobster festival in Maine. And instead of writing about the food, he he went and decided to write about whether it was ethical to cook lobsters. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he he the baseline he uses is this idea that anything that is able to express a preference is uh, should be considered to have consciousness, um, hmm. and that it's pretty clear from watching a lobster being cooked that it has a pretty clear preference to um, not be cooked. You mean? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a it's a really it's maybe my favorite of his essays. It's really worth a read. Okay. Not th- so that's neither here nor there to this chapter, but right. that was a fun little jaunt. Mm. <laughs> uh, so, so yes. back to the original question of like whether utilitarianism is like the the natural state of humans. I don't. I don't think so. I mean, I think that we're all programmed to seek pleasure and to avoid displeasure. But yeah. yeah. I think there are a lot of philosophers who have debated this and have come up with knowing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, um, I think that if you're if you're looking at, say, right now, and mask mandates, it's mm-hmm. for the good of the community, and it's kind of a u- utilitarian right. argument that mm-hmm. the inconvenience of a single person is worth the larger good that it can do. Right. Um, Maybe the... Well, well, yeah, so it's like, like Marat's argument is is a communitarian argument that Mm -hmm. sometimes we need to set aside the needs of the individual uh, and preference the needs of the community. So maybe the point that makes this utilitarianism really, really uh, American is Marat's, what he says right after, which is, Maximize pleasure, minimize displeasure, result what is good 
It's the, mm-hmm. it's the saying that if you maximize pleasure and minimize displeasure, then that will end up with, the, then, then that's, that's goodness. Right. Where we might disagree with that. It might be the, it might be mm-hmm. the human uh, instinct or first response to anything that we come across is to, is to do what makes us happy and feels good and avoid what doesn't. But, mm-hmm. but he would argue that that doesn't necessarily equal good. Right. It may be the case, but it doesn't mean that it's good. Right. For the mm-hmm. community, so, like you're wearing your mask. If you're uncomfortable wearing your mask and you don't wear it, and so you're not uncomfortable, that, that still isn't good. Mm-hmm. And, and so he presents this thought experiment in which two red-blooded Americans... Yes. What does he say? They're very, both large and vigorous USA individuals Mm -hmm. stumble across a dead man's single serving can of delicious pea soup. Uh, Yes. And and we need to decide, they need to decide whether uh, they're going to bonk the other one over the head and steal the soup for themselves. Right. Which is, as as far as philosophical thought experiments go, it seems pretty reasonable, you know? Yeah. I'd, I'd put that up there next to the trolley problem. When Steepley's answer is, then we bid on the soup. Whoever has got yes. the most desire for the soup and <laughs> right. is willing to fork over the right. higher price buys the other's half. Uh, mm-hmm. That's when I wrote that Steeply is tragically American. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's like something out of a – it reminded me of the kind of thing that somebody would say in a 1950s educational film strip about how democracy works. Yeah. yeah. Capitalism? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> then it all – comes down to trying to explain why in spite of the utilitarianism the freedom to make your choice and to choose what is best for you why that's not exactly what he meant either as it turns out because as he says uh, because in our u.s value system anybody who does derives an increase in pleasure from somebody else's pain is a deviant a sadistic Mm -hmm. sicko and is thereby excluded from the community. Are they, though? Yeah, Excluded by the community? It's, right. It, and, and I think Marat actually immediately raises the point that right. I had about that, which is, like, sure, you can say that about people who derive pleasure directly from other people's suffering, but what about people who derive pleasure regardless of the resulting regardless. suffering of other people? Right. They seem to mm-hmm. be, like, American right. heroes. They seem to be right. Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and Donald Trump. And, yeah. uh, and what, what about that? I like the comment about even your, your Greekly democratic howling mob type tyranny. That's us, yes. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, we want what we want. And, and as you say, whether, are you doing it specifically knowing that it will hurt someone or are you doing it and you don't care whether it was and, one. And it gets, so it gets back to this question, too, of like, what's the difference between seemingly purposeless violence and right. political violence if they both right. result in the same thing? Like, what's the difference right. between what doing something difference? because you want to harm someone or doing something even though it harms someone? Or doing like, something. the same thing happens. Or doing something and, and closing your eyes to the fact that it hurts someone. Right. Like, mm-hmm. not even letting yourself be aware of it. They're yeah. like like systemic racism. Yeah, <laughs> you right. Know? Uh, if you say that you didn't know or that you hadn't thought about it, does that absolve you somehow? Right. Or does that make it better? I think there's a Steve Martin bit about how to rob a bank 
and then what to do if you get caught. And he said, it's very simple. You just go, you just two, two words. I forgot. You just go in front of the judge and you say, I forgot armed robbery was illegal and they will have no choice but to acquit you. <laughs> I forgot. The soup can argument sounded so much like something, like a, a conversation. I mean, you could, see, I could see myself getting into this kind of a yeah. argument with a friend. Just, like a and, really, and li- a just really like frustrating in, conversation. You know right. one of those and ones where time, it's like, yeah, yeah. Every time you come up with what you think is a good point, they come up with a, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah. okay, so he's dead, and he's right there with the can clutched in his hands. Or like, yeah. well, who bought it? It matters who bought it. Well, he bought it. He's, yeah, you know, just mm-hmm. these little... And they also return to the allegory of the child eating sugar all the time because it feels good in the moment, even though, as as Murat says, even if he knows inside his mind it will hurt his stomach and rot his little fangs. Right. Right. Uh, To me, this conversation seemed very similar to any kind of political uh, conversation you have trying Mm -hmm. to be bipartisan. Yeah. uh, Especially nowadays. Where you just have two people who just fundamentally do not agree on basic facts of the argument. And so they can't even argue with each other. They just talk around each other. Mm-hmm. Murat is really very shrewd in steering conversations. Mm-hmm. In yeah. the end, is it's, it's steeply on page 427. And you'll, you'll accuse me. Of you'll say I won't only poke him in the eye and and commandeer the whole serving of soup for myself, but will after eating it I'll give him the dirty bowl and spoon and maybe even the no deposit habitant can to have to deal with saddle him with my greed's waste all under some sham arrangement of quote interdependence that's really just a crude nationalist scheme to indulge my own U.S. individual pleasure lust without the complications or annoyance of considering some neighbor's own desires and interests. I mean, that's yeah. it. Yeah. That's it. Although, that's exactly Marat, it, isn't it? Marat Marat gets and, a, Marat's annoyed by that. He says he he hates when people put words in put his mouth. Put words in his mouth. Mm-hmm. But it's the truth. I mean, it's the... It's what we all think when we read about the U.S. and their creation of Onan and the dumping of waste into Canada. And I I mean, it seems so obvious that that's it. And although Marat objects to having words put in his mouth, surely Mm -hmm. that's what everyone in Canada believes, yes? Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, probably. I mean, how not? he, He clarifies that his question is more about the philosophy of individuals in the USA. And he says, how... How is how is community and your respect part of my happiness in this moment? If I'm a USA person, mm-hmm. which is it seems like a more foundational question about not just the way the US and Onan work, but like their reasons for existing or the reasons they began to exist. It's a serious question that seems impossible to answer. The whole balancing of individual needs and wants versus the mm-hmm. common good. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's certainly been hashed out for centuries. Mm-hmm. Probably as long as humans had words to speak, it's been, it's been a question. A couple other biographical details I gleaned here. Marat's uh, wife has been in a coma for 14 months, I think it said. 
Yeah. Yeah. And it says she was born without a skull. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Didn't that come up earlier? Uh, it came up that there are babies being born without skulls near oh, the concavity. Okay. So it, I just found that really surprising. Like I would not imagine that a person born without a skull would reach adulthood. Right. Yeah. How is that even possible? And it's not, that's not why she's in the coma either. No, right? she has a that's, heart disease, right? She has, that, she has that thing that, didn't she have the same thing that the woman whose heart was stolen has? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or we believe that she does. That sounds right. I don't even know where it was, but Marat really likes Boston Public Gardens. I, I this just made me mm-hmm. smile. Yeah, uh, because they yeah. have the duck pond there, mm-hmm. and he likes to sit and watch the ducks sailing around. And you can't see that; you, it doesn't look like they have legs, but they just sort of float around. I thought that was yeah. kind of charming. That's what yeah. I like about ducks too. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I guess if you didn't have legs, that would make you really happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's also a comment about the educational system on 429. Oh, yeah. So this is the crux of the educational system you find so appalling, not to teach what to desire, to teach how to be free, to teach mm-hmm. how to make knowledgeable choices about pleasure and delay, and the kids' overall down-the-road maximal interests. I have a thing to say about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, it's it's funny that we were talking about my conduct cases because I was mm-hmm. going to bring those up mm. at this point and how even when I'm meeting with a student to talk about how they shouldn't be drinking alcohol, I'm not telling them they shouldn't be drinking alcohol exactly. I'm reminding them that it's technically against the law for underage students right. to drink alcohol, but we're more having a conversation about how to make healthy choices and drink responsibly. And uh-huh. so hopefully they're leaving my conversation with to teach how to make knowledgeable choices about pleasure and delay right. uh, as opposed mm-hmm. to what to desire. I'm not telling them not to have alcohol or not to want to have alcohol. Right. Mm, yeah. So I drew that parallel, and I didn't think that that was necessarily a criticism, but it sounds like it's framed as a criticism in here. So I well, don't know. it's a steeply it's a it's deeply criticizing Marat, right? Doesn't Marat? Oh, okay. They've had that previously. The conversation was a something about what you desire, whether you desire something that's only for yourself or whether you desire something that's like for the greater good. I think it seems to me like Steeply is misrepresenting what Marat thinks about schools. Steeply is saying Marat thinks that we should teach all children to only want what's best for the community. Right. Um, And Marat never said that. But he did. No. Not exactly. I mean, I, mean I, I think that ultimately, if you're teaching students how to be free and how to make knowledgeable choices about pleasure and delay, there's still there's plenty of room in there for a political agenda. And if you want to teach them to be considerate members of a society, you need to teach them to at least think about and acknowledge the needs of the community that they live in. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what Marat's point is. Yeah, I think Marat steeply makes it sound like it's personal desires. Teach them how to. It's a fine line. 
to walk, mm-hmm. whether you're parenting mm-hmm. kids or whether you're teaching in a you know educational setting, how do you teach them about making choices? You do teach them. Yeah. yeah, you do teach them how to make choices. Either you tell them to do whatever makes them happy, or you help to show them implications of choices. You, mm-hmm. you don't have to tell them what to choose, but you do probably owe it to them to help expose what the implications can be from the choices. Yeah, because a lot of times, if you do tell them specifically what to do and what choice to do, they're just they end up doing the exact opposite. The opposite, right? Yeah. So, yeah, it's all about kind of... Because children are revolutionaries, let's face it. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. They are. We have to talk about the, the ending of their conversation, which yes. is really about Marat saying, why is Steeply so worried about, uh, you know, the release of this entertainment? Uh, mm. they, they won't and they can't force anyone to watch it. Everyone's free to watch it or not watch. So you must not trust Americans to make enlightened choices. Here you're talking about, you know, how great you are and how freedom is the most important thing and freedom to make choices. And if an individual chooses what is good for them, and if every individual chooses what's good for themselves, it will be good for everyone then. You say this, but you don't trust Americans to make the choice. Yeah. And he says the the reason that you're worried about the entertainment is that you don't have any confidence in Americans' abilities to make the right choice. Right. And the Mm -hmm. reason you think that we're just trying to harm you for no good reason is because you're assuming that tons of USers are going to choose to watch it. Right? It's not us. We're not doing it. It's just there. Mm -hmm. It's like we're not causing harm. We're not causing harm. I mean, we could even put labels on the entertainment that says right. this could kill you if you watch it. Right. Like cigarettes. Like cigarettes. Right. right. Yeah. I, I wondered, I, I wrote a note, is he talking about, like about all addictions? Mm. Mm. Wondered about that. Because, you know, you're right. Like cigarettes with the dire warnings on the packages and... Well, there's all kinds of things. Drugs. I mean, people that become addicted to drugs... It's not like they didn't know that it could happen. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. might not think that it could happen to them. They might think, well, it won't happen to me. But it's not like they think, oh, these are good and safe and there's no, <laughs> there's no risk, right? This is healthy for me, yes. Right, <laughs> right. So is the entertainment just a symbol of all addictions? That knowing I, you know, that think, it's bad for you, but doing it anyway? Yeah, I mean, I, I have questions about that because I do think that I could see that more if the the victims of the entertainment knew what it was before they watched it. Yeah. We don't yeah. know that it doesn't have a, we don't know that it, well, it doesn't say anything on the cartridge. Right, yeah, yeah, it doesn't yeah, say it anything. Just it just kind of has face. like a smiley face on. Yeah. But we don't know because we don't know what it is. It could start with a disclaimer. Just like the uh, aggravating movie event that James O. and Mario did, you know, that says don't don't spend your money on this. It could, at the beginning of the entertainment, it could say, you shouldn't want to watch this. This is going to do you harm. Yeah, it's possible. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't want to watch it. So who knows? I don't know. There's a vocabulary word, too. Ooh. Mafic. Celebrate with boisterous, rejoicing, and hilarious behavior with a public demonstration. Mafic. Let's go mafic. Hmm. Put that in your pocket and use it this week. 
Liam? Mm-hmm. So we segue from this kind of... Uh, abruptly? Abruptly, yeah. That was the word I was looking for. It's kind of jarring. <laughs> we just mm-hmm. It's a hard cut to this uh, uh, continuation of the Eric Clipperton saga. Yes. I'm really glad this part exists. Yeah. Well, tell me mm. more. Why are you glad yeah. about this? Because I agree. Because we argued so hard last last time we met. Mm -hmm. So this provides necessary closure. Yes. Although still many mysteries. Right. I mean, it seems like this is is one of the few moments of really like high drama that we've gotten in the book Hmm. so far. In which Mario really comes across as the hero. At least to me. I don't know if others agree with that. I I think you should say more about that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's the most active we've seen Mario being. Like, he goes down to the gate to meet Clipperton and sort of, That's like, true. intervenes on his behalf to allow him inside and accompanies him. I felt like Mario was the person I was with throughout all of this, rather okay. than Clipperton. Yeah. I yeah, felt, I can see that. I can see it, and yet I felt like there was still a mystery about who Clipperton was. And we hear a little bit about who he was, but what was it about him that made Mario like him? And Mario is a little boy in this. He's just a little boy. Mm-hmm. And Wait, how old is he here? I don't know if I caught that. He um, is he's little because Pemulus is really was- young. Pemulus is like... How how old? At least in the last section with Cartoon, I thought Mario was like eight or nine. Right. Okay. He's just a nine. little boy because yeah. they also mentioned that Pemulus was was a young uh, student at that time, and he was already making money off of bets about. Oh right, right, <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. He was he was the book the bookmaker for <laughs> bets. Mm-hmm. So Mario is this little boy, eight or nine years old. Mm-hmm. And Clipperton is a teenager, right? He's 16 or 17 or something. Something like that, yeah. Something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. So this is really weird. So why that connection? And it mentions that Mario had Mario had apparently said really good things about uh, his father. Mm-hmm. And, then and, that, that's and that's why Clipperton wanted to see him. But what? What what well, would Mario, make this I think suicidal? Mario looked up to James, what, though. Yeah, but what did he say that would make this suicidal teenager want to meet James O, and then blow oh, his brains out in front of him? I it it I, I mean, don't he's, know. And he's then, desperate. And like then, he's, and then yeah. Mario insists to his father that he should be the one that cleans up this horrible crime scene, bloody mess, and he's a little boy. And his father agrees to let him do that. I don't know. I thought it was icky. Hmm. I thought well, that okay. the very tactic that let him win in the first place kept the wins, and in a way, Clipperton himself from being treated as real. So that adds credence to my hypothesis that Clipperton is actually a ghost, hmm. Uh, hmm. which I presented last time we met. That's I right. I also yeah. thought that there are sections of this book that are purposely written to be terribly, terribly graphic. Yes. And some of the detox scenes are way more graphic than this post-suicide scene. Right. Yeah. 
and the James so, O, the James O suicide scene was much more graphic. Than right. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I interpreted the cleaning and the the things that Mario did for Clipperton as peak Mario, just utterly kind and selfless, and that he was doing something that was physically and emotionally difficult. Yes. It in felt the cleaning. Like, and it was like to honor Clipperton, give him his last rites of some yeah, sort. Yeah, like, like, like part of his grieving process and yes. also um, like, a, like a witnessing of him. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think if we're, we, to return to the question of like how and why Mario's friends with this much older kid, I think it seems to me the way he is described as being ghostly and like largely ignored by everyone and shunned by everyone um, like, like he and Mario have that in common, right? People talk, there's one of the first times we hear about Mario, we're talking about how he overhears a lot of things because people kind of pretend that he's not there. Right. Yeah. So your point would be that whatever was left to clean up was not blood and gore. Maybe there was nothing. I mean. Is that the point? That maybe there was. I, I don't know if that's. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that I like I think that I, I buy Brianna's premise metaphorically. I'm not sure that I believe that Clipperton was a literal ghost. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I think that there was a physical person who committed suicide in that room. And I do think it's bizarre and kind of awful that a nine year old kid did the cleanup of the scene afterwards. But also, like, Mario is not a normal nine-year-old kid. He thinks very differently, and I think he has always been, like, wise beyond his years, maybe, hmm. is the sense that I get. Or even even wiser than pretty much any adult in the book. Um, yeah. With the exception, maybe, of Lyle. I have a hard time getting a read on him. And so, I don't know. It's an awful thing to imagine, but it seems like the thing that Mario needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know what to think. It doesn't. Yeah. I just have to say, this is not how I remembered this happening. I forgot completely about this thing with with Clipperton coming to ETA. I remembered Clipperton eventually shooting himself, but I remembered it happening in competition, like when some contestant who didn't know Clipperton's deal decided to actually seriously play against him. Hmm. Um, Which is why we had that argument last time. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um. Uh, so, so this this surprised me to reread. Mm-hmm, same. I didn't remember it either. The other thing that came up in this about Clipperton was it was reminiscent of the conversation that one of the students had with Lyle back about wanting something so bad and then being oh, afraid yeah. of of yeah. getting it. And mm. so this is, this is the other so side this whole of that thing, coin. Right. Because Clipperton uh, had never won tournaments, right? He didn't win tournaments because even though he won, well, he, he, he did, he won, but he did in quotation but in, marks. Right. But mm-hmm. he didn't get yeah. the trophy and he didn't get the. No, he got, he got the trophy, yeah, he got the but trophy. He, he wasn't ranked. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, all right. Um, until they, until was it when uh, time came into being yeah. and subsidized time came into being that they had new stats guys who didn't yeah, realize it, U- that you weren't supposed to. became Onanta. Right, and they real they didn't realize that you were supposed to ignore those wins in the stats, and they put him in, and so then he then he was 
Was there a magazine article about him or something? About yeah, he's he's like yeah, because yeah, the magazine yeah. takes notice of him, and and everyone right. thinks he's finally got what he wanted. The other thing that comes out after his death is that his parents didn't know he was a tennis player. Yes, mm-hmm. that was all very. That, he, that they lived in Indiana. In fact, there's a reference to something was wrong with his father because he was hit with hail. There actually was a big hailstorm in near Bloomington, uh, mm. 1994, near Crawfordsville. Uh, huge hailstones with lots of damage to people and places. Wow. But I, that was also the other thing. It says that himself, what, what did this mean? Himself skipped Indianapolis and took Mario to the first of his life's two funerals he skipped what did they mean he skipped uh that indianapolis was the um tournament the clay court oh. tournament that oh, um okay. Oh, okay. clipperton all would right. be at okay all right i also thought it was and, uh i i liked the detail that mario was able to successfully prevail on himself to not shoot footage of the funeral mm-hmm. right I have an, another question, and I now I can't even find where it was, but it might have been around page 432 or 433, a reference to the Bitter Brigade Boys. Who are the Bitter Brigade Boys? Uh, the else? Clipperton Brigade, it would be. So the people who were supposed to play Clipperton. Oh, right. But, yeah, yeah that's, that's what they call people who get matched with Clipperton and, oh, and have oh, to, oh, like... Oh, 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 right. Forfeit, okay. and they get I thought kind of I should buy. know who that was, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Oh, yes. Okay, so the detail that I really liked about this was that Clipperton's parents believed that he had all those trophies because he told them that he had an after-school job as a freelance mm-hmm. tennis trophy designer. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And they were not... The, the parents were not the two brightest bulbs in the great U.S. parental right. light show. Right. <laughs> so why do we think that Clipperton would have wanted to see James O? I don't or know. what do you think James O told him? You know, if, if Mario really looked up to him and, and told Clipperton about him, I think he probably would describe him as someone who... Um, did he expect him to be able to save him from himself? Or did he maybe, expect or him I to think be so. able to say, go ahead and shoot yourself? Or... It doesn't get any better than this. So if you don't like it, why well, you might as well use that gun you've been carrying around. Or what did James yeah, O tell him? And it's did funny he... because, like, they even say that it's surprising that he wants to see James O because James O doesn't have a lot of sympathy for situations like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they talk about how Mario, Avril, Lyle are the ones who carry the emotional right. weight. Right. Right. That was so funny too. That yeah. that also. And, Made and me we question, don't, we like, don't get I don't think hear. of Avril that way. Right. I don't think yeah. of Avril that way. As somebody that students or people confide in? Yeah. I mean, I Mario, either. yes, and Lyle, yes, but but Avril? I, yeah, I don't what know. What was that about? But we, the thing that I was getting to is that we, we don't get to hear what was said yeah. by James O. to Clipperton and... And I don't have a lot of confidence that he said anything close to the right thing in that situation. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he might have said, "Go ahead and do it," if that's what he you might want. have. And it's it's the it's only tragic thing that's going to that, make you feel better is to be dead. It's tragic that 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 he kills himself while Lyle is en route because I think Lyle is really the person he needs to talk to. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. 
And they say, don't they, that the only people Mario talked to about the what happened was Lyle and there's somebody else that he he told what happened. Oh, I don't remember that. Remember yeah, that I remember he hasn't talked to Hal or any of his family about it. Right. I can't remember who he did talk to. I think he's, he told Lyle, which goes along with that thing about Lyle knows everything. I guess yeah. that's part of the mysterious feel to me, is that this is one more mysterious thing that Lyle, Lyle knows. Lyle, mm-hmm. Lyle knows all these hush-hush things from he really is so many like different the, the people. confessor for the school. Yeah. Like he, people come to him yeah. to tell him everything. Mm-hmm. So then we we get this little thing about how is that here where it talks about the the counselor at ETA or is that later? Um, yeah, that's, that's here. Uh, it's Rusk. Ru- Dolores Rusk. That's right. Oh right. Um, who the students consider to be slightly slightly worse than nothing at all. Um, oh, I'm sorry. You're right. It's, oh yeah, it's yeah. Never mind. Yeah. House little... Okay. Let's keep going then. Let's talk briefly. We have this little interlude with. Don Gately's job cleaning Shattuck, the homeless shelter. I don't know. It sounds deeply unpleasant, but it also sounds like he values the job and he values the opportunity to kind of, it says to uh, recharge his gratitude battery. Right. It mm-hmm. reminds him reminds him that he should be grateful for not being one of them. Yeah. And it also brings up this fact that he'll be paying his restitution for a long time. And he ne- he does need the extra money to pay restitution, but yeah, he takes that horrible job because it can remind him of what could have been mm-hmm. like. I think this is a new character. I don't know if he comes back again, but Stavros Labokulas, his mm-hmm. boss, is like a janitorial entrepreneur who wants to eventually make enough money to open up an upscale shoe store somewhere. Right. Does anyone have anything else to say about this section? I feel like it's valuable context, but I don't know if I have anything to talk about specifically here. Yeah. I agree. I didn't even underline anything. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then we get back to like this parallel story. So it's more talking about the context of Clipperton. And there's a section about how uh, there are certain very talented junior players who just can't keep the lip stiff and fires stoked if they ever finally do achieve a top ranking or win some important event. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And there's this other story about a kid in California who poisons himself and inadvertently his entire family after he has a, a really triumphant match. Yeah. And which is very, it's very it's- sad. It mm-hmm. is. It reminded me of two things, or made me think of two things. And one was that it seems to be like the entertainment. Mm-hmm. It's very similar to that, you know. Yeah. The medical attaché is comatose or dead or whatever, and the wife comes in and then she's watching, and then, or yeah. your connection to the the joke, the lethal joke thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Skin, yeah. It's very much like that. It's like a contagion, like a. Bad luck, bad circumstances mm-hmm. that you wander into this thing that's going to kill you. Right. Um, but I, the other thing I wondered was, was he trying to say that Eric Clipperton's suicide is, sim- is kind yeah. of the same thing as this kid's cyanide death? Because I don't think it is the same. Yeah, I mean, I I have to agree. Like, So, so the thesis... 
I think here is that they become the, successful. Argue, the argument the narration makes is that Clipperton finally got what he wanted by getting this actual real top right. ranking. Right. Um, Just like the California kid. Right. Was, right. I, I think, I think the difference here is that now finally Clipperton is going to be forced into the spotlight and he will have to either play a real game of tennis without threatening his own life or he will have to play a very visible game of tennis in which he threatens his own life. And neither of those options is going to be good for him. I don't know. It so, seems like yeah. he's been pretty visible all along. I mean, mm-hmm. what's not visible like in, about in waving this, your, holding the gun to your head at a tennis in, match? In, in, this, in that part of the country, I think he's been visible, but it's... It's different when you're, like, top-ranked and they're publishing magazine articles about you. And stuff. the thing that seems so different to me is that the California kid gets his acclaim, right, mm-hmm. By, mm-hmm. by practicing and playing and being good at tennis. And right. Clipperton got his by blackmailing others into letting him win. So it didn't have anything to do with him, like, achieving this this skill level that he was trying to achieve. It seemed to me so different. If you're working really hard to improve your skills and you're practicing and you're doing everything you can to get good at what you do, and then you get to that point and you feel the hollowness of it maybe, but, but is it the same thing if you're not getting better, but you're blackmailing others I don't know. I I think if one were to generously assess Clipperton's tennis game, I think that you could say that his tennis game is less about physical prowess and technique, and it's more about the the head game of tennis, which is something Mm -hmm. that, you know, the, the book talks about everyone having a stake in the, in the sort of the mind games that happen in tennis competition. And it's just like taking that thing to the exclusion of all else and, and him developing this strategic position. I don't know if that's how he sees I think it's tough to say how Clipperton sees himself as a tennis player. The other thing is that this kind of disproves the... This is an interesting story to have side by side with the Marat and Steeply conversation. That choosing what's yeah. good for you and makes you feel good, uh, you would think, you know, initially you would think, well, these kids whose whole life is tennis and competition, that they would want to win, right? right? They play to win. That's what's ingrained in them. And that's what makes them feel good. But they set that aside because of this idea of... of it would be causing harm. Right. It would be causing yeah. harm. So they are like the best of the USers because mm-hmm. they actually do look at it and they say, I really, really want to win. Winning has implications for my ability to get become a professional tennis player. And uh, mm-hmm. it's really important for me to win. And all of my focus in my life is on being a good tennis player, but because it would cause harm to this person, if I beat him, then I'm not going to. That's, that's Mm -hmm. what you would like to think that humans would choose. Yeah. Sort of. You would like to think that, except then you get into the whole thing about 
So then are you suckers and saps if you always give in to the blackmailer? So I, right. I don't know. It's all very confusing. It's hard mm-hmm. to know how to feel about it all. Yeah. For me, uh, I also don't necessarily think that Clipperton and the kid from Fresno are that similar. Because for the kid from Fresno, I think it, it is kind of this direct um, A to B of he wanted to win. He was, his whole life was tennis. Uh-huh. And then when he did win, it was completely hollow. With Clipperton, right. I'm not necessarily convinced that he ne- he cared that much about tennis. Right. I'm not convinced that yeah. Clipperton was that Clipperton killed himself because of tennis. I think Clipperton killed himself because he was a deeply unhappy person. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Right. And and yeah, like we still that... don't know anything about Clipperton's reasons for playing right. tennis at all mm-hmm. or, honestly, or for more specifically doing what he did. Cause honestly, how can you feel good about the wins that you get that are just because people won't play you so that you won't shoot yourself? I mean, who, who could feel good and proud about that? Mm-hmm. It's almost like he's doing an experiment on humans. Mm-hmm. Like what are yeah. they going to do? If I, mm-hmm. if I say I'm going to kill myself, is somebody going to step up and, actually play a game with me right and if so mm-hmm. will i shoot myself or will i shoot them i don't know right. <laughs> what will i do i don't know it's almost like he's it's almost like a social experiment instead of a winning at tennis thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or maybe it's a maybe he's assuming that at some point somebody will say forget it i'm gonna play i'm gonna play him and then right. that will give him a reason and an excuse to kill himself. Maybe yeah. he's just looking for a reason to and to time to time his death somehow. Yeah, I, I kind of get that. Like <laughs> somebody pushing you off the high dive because you've been standing there for five hours and you keep saying, I'm going to do it. I'm going to jump. I can do it. I can do it. And finally, someone just has had enough and they push you off. You yeah. say, there, you've jumped. How was it? Yeah. yeah. Like, there, you've been beaten. Are you really going to shoot yourself? Oh, yeah, I guess you did. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. What are his... He's a, he is a big mystery. Ghost mm-hmm. or no ghost? Mm-hmm. And if he was a ghost, <laughs> are his parents also ghosts? <laughs> well, yes, obviously. Probably. Yeah. No. Uh, probably. Hmm. So then we, we have this little section here where we're still watching Mario's Onanti ad. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and people people are beginning to sort of lose concentration and lose patience with it. <laughs> but we have this like I don't have any any real notes to talk about in here. Uh it's just like about the section of the movie that depicts the invention of subsidized time or the origin of the idea of subsidized time as a way to pay for the the massive cost of like evacuating this exclusion zone and reconfiguring the Northeast. The idea arises from a Chinese restaurant menu and President Gentle's attendance at the Ken L. Ration Magnavox Kemper Insurance Forsythia Bowl. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, One interesting thing is that Veals from that advertising company was there. Veals is like now consulting with the president. Mm Mm-hmm. I wondered if it was important or not. There was a comment about uh, something indicates that Mario's film has something out of whack with its chronology. 
Oh, right. Yes, well, because they're talking about, about how the the inclusion of the mention of Oren oh, doesn't make sense. with his punting the, and gentle... Uh, right. Johnny oh, Jensen yeah. talks that was, about that Oren's amazing in, punting. In subsidized time, and clearly right. it's not in the okay. continuity of the movie. Right. Yeah, I took that to just mean that, like, Mario wanted to reference his older brother in his movie, even though it was an anachronism. Yeah. On 439, there's an there's some kind of were, were they referencing the oxen and the ref the refugee oxen when it said something oh. about uh, two horned Delaware's looking a bit crowded and one or two curvy horned animals yeah. apparently got by the tactical yeah. squads. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So yes. do we assume okay. those were the oxen with the refugees? I I believe that. The, yeah. yeah I would you can't have refugees like without a couple oxen in there. And yeah. We also, we also, I also love the the image of uh, mustaches falling off. Mm-hmm. Uh, By the way, the just a brief tangent. Um, so Kelly Reichert is a filmmaker. She's got a, a new movie out called First Cow that's supposedly really good. I'm very excited to see it soon. It's on on demand now. Um, hmm. But she came. She directed Meek's Cutoff, the western about people traveling west on the Oregon Trail and kind of getting lost and turned yeah. around. Yeah. Um, she came to UWM to give a talk and. Uh, she talked about her experience making that movie and how she decided that they wanted to make it. She was talking about how settlers actually usually had oxen pulling their wagons and not horses. And she was like, I don't, haven't seen that in a lot of movies, so we're going to use real oxen. Um, and she came to the conclusion that you shouldn't, if you're making a movie, you shouldn't work with oxen unless you absolutely <laughs> have to. And the, the big problem they had with oxen is that they can't back up. And oh, right. so if you need right. to do multiple oh, takes, right. you have to do the take and then you have to take the wagon oh, back around no. in a really wide circle to get it right back to its right. starting point before you right. can do another take. Right. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that's your oxen fact. The oxen, for the today. oxen fact. I, I enjoyed the oxen. I enjoyed their comments about if they had oxen, then they would be refugees. <laughs> Can't have that. <laughs> if they don't, then. Then they're just tourists. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Did we know all along that Luria P is in Mario's puppet show? I don't think we knew that until now, until but it, it's end. not surprising to me, given that she seems to be a figure of a lot of right. like, political gossip. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, this book is so confusing. <laughs> mm-hmm. But that's okay. I was so confused about the one I, I, I texted people with my endnote question. Oh and, yeah. And Brianna was kind enough. Brianna, who is my favorite, uh, was That's kind right. enough. To, <laughs> was kind enough to uh, try to help me figure it out. I still don't really understand that reference, that footnote reference, which it ends with a. As it turns out, it's the footnote that we'd already read, which I I yes. thought that it was when I when I was scanning and, and trying to figure out which part I was supposed to be reading but i never did understand what he was referencing i think it has the it it's i think it's just references the number 305 and then it says like is it subject or sub or is it su sub and so what Um, is that what's it referring to i thought it would be referring to like one of the one of the notes on the footnote footnote but there are a whole bunch of them in there and so it doesn't I, I don't really understand. I think it's the purpose yeah. of that 
end note is just to remind you of the cult of the train and the train jumpers. To remind me because because, because I don't remember it vividly It's, it's in enough. reference to Marat saying that his two older brothers uh, right, died. What does it say? A kiss, kissed a train before yeah. marrying age or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Well, I eventually decided that was true, but I was, I felt very befuddled and annoyed. <laughs> mm, I was annoyed. It was yeah. one of those annoyed with the footnotes moments. Mm-hmm. But really happy to have a daughter-in-law. It's the best. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you ever get a chance to have one, you should... You should do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, that seems to happen without any. You can't actually yes. go get one. Get yourself they a just have to appear in your life. So. Yeah. So, do we have anything else to talk about here? Uh, we... I've got two things that are really neither here nor there and are really just tangents. I love it. Okay. I like okay. those. All right. Those are the uh, best. So, the one that I guess is more relevant is if. Um, Clipperton is a ghost then, Brianna. Uh, does Mario giving <laughs> Clipperton, like, final rights and everything and, like, cleaning up the um... Ectoplasm? Yeah, ectoplasm <laughs> and everything. Is that what makes it so that Clipperton doesn't keep on returning keep on haunting? And that this cycle doesn't continue? So I mean, in it says that he doesn't. Oh! Yeah. Mm. Although, yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. Ooh, I, lo- I like that. Okay, yeah, so... I I would buy that, yeah, okay. for sure. All right. Um, and then, other thing, which is uh, even less relevant, um, I can't remember, do we remember how Alice Brown got her lateral, lateral Alice Brown? Alice Moore? Alice Moore, um, Alice Moore. No, we, Alice. Don't, we don't know exactly what that means, although there's the thing she about She only how, moves sideways, right? Yeah, well, Hal, Hal says that he thinks that supermarket aisles are the best place for her because she can kind of uh, uh, sidle on through or shuffle on through or something. I forget how he puts it. Hmm. Um, so that's all we know about what's up I with somehow, her. I somehow picture her with her feet both pointed to one side. Hmm, like no. her, like just like like uh, you know, everybody has their physical weird deformities mm-hmm. or out of yeah. the out of the ordinary. I picture her with her, with her legs like and her like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I'd believe it. Okay. Or that, that her hip, that her hips aren't hinged to move front to back somehow, but only side to side or hmm. yeah, something like maybe that. maybe something. Yeah. Which okay. could be tricky on the tennis court. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it means you have to turn sideways to move forward and back. Yeah, I guess you difficult. use a pivot. I, mean, I, I could foot. see how it could give you an advantage, though, because if, if you know how to move your own body, right. I could imagine somebody playing against you wouldn't really, wouldn't really necessarily know how to, know how to, best. to expect. Yeah. Yeah. And what would it be like to not have a skull? Would you have to just wear a helmet, do you think? I, I assume. Yeah. I mean, there are, so there are people, it is a real thing to have part of your skull missing. Um, yes. Removed, even. Re- removed mm-hmm. for surgeries, for instance. And those, right. those people would wear a helmet right. at all times. Right. Um, hmm. I can't, yeah, at the very I can't least. decide whether to share this anecdote. I find I find Ooh. it very memorable, but also kind of viscerally upsetting. Should I should I not say it? <laughs> uh, 
if you say it, you can always cut it out. Well, post. I'm just thinking about in, in consideration for you people he's on thinking, the call. He's thinking about his mother. Yeah. Let's face it. It's a, oh, I mean, it's not a really bad thing. It just, it just kind of, I don't know. It's a thing that I read. He's thinking about my dislike of, of gory, uh, upsetting, It's not really a gore thing. It's just an uncanniness thing. okay. Uh, I I remember reading this in my psychology textbook in the section on, on neurology and brain development and stuff. Well, maybe you've even told it to me. Who knows? Maybe this will sound familiar. Um, uh, it, so, so it's entirely possible for people to live with with half of their brain removed. Uh, mm-hmm. Hemispherectomy is actually a pretty common procedure, particularly yes. among young children. But it it can happen with adults too if they have severe epilepsy or something that they can have half of their brain surgically removed uh-huh. and they can still function just uh-huh. fine. Um, uh, but but a thing that I remember hearing reading in there is this uh, anecdote about a person who had a hemispherectomy and until their second surgery to like make sure things were stabilizing and healing properly. So this, she had to wear a helmet because half of her or, or part of her skull had been removed right. um, temporarily. Uh, but she recalled the sensation of going to sleep and waking up to realize that her brain had shifted inside her skull. Ooh. Oh, like, like, like oh. just the, the feeling oh. of it being balanced differently. Wow. Uh, Yeah, that's horrifying to me. So I just, sorry, sorry. Thank you for letting me share that. No, no. Well, well, so you would think (laughs) if you didn't have a skull, unless she had, maybe she's had surgeries to implant like a, some kind of a plastic kind of something in there. But wouldn't wouldn't things shift around all the time? You would think so. (laughs) Yeah. Like if you sleep on your side. Yeah. yeah. Things are a little. I would imagine that you'd have to have some sort of like structural uh, implantation going right. on, even just to keep like you know. I mean, if you don't have a skull, you also just don't have anything supporting your face and all of that. Right. So right. Yeah. yeah. You don't really yeah. have a face if you don't have mm-hmm. a skull. Oh, that makes me real sad. Yeah. 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 Hmm. Well, you can't even eat. Right. Yeah. Can you? Well, I guess maybe. Well, no, because your yeah, jaw no, has to connect really, no. to something. Tube, I would assume. Yeah. 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 These all seem like almost insurmountable medical problems. They, That's one of the do. reasons I'm so surprised that this is the case for somebody who who clearly lived to adulthood and is still alive. Right. And yeah. his first and the first thing that we heard about her was that she has this heart thing, right? Right. This serious mm-hmm. heart. I, it seems like that would be a minor thing. <laughs> when you taken <laughs> taken it comparatively exactly mm-hmm. you know what i don't understand i mean hmm. you kind of think that all these strange physical anomalies must be from environmental toxins and mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. but the truth is that these people like marat's wife is not a young person no. And so she was born without her skull a long time ago, well before the waste catapults and the and the. That's a that's a really know? good point. Although I'm a little. No, yeah, that's true. That almost certainly would have been before annular fusion. I'm a little right. hazy on when annular fusion started to be a thing. Mm-hmm. Well, but... it happened. It must have happened 
sometime in the 80s, early 90s. Because, yeah. because didn't James O. go from that to his filmmaking and his tennis academy? Right, right. And, and like yeah. kind of, his credits are sometime in the, the mid-90s. So these people who are adults, even Mario, mm-hmm. even, even, even the students at the tennis academy shouldn't be young enough to have been um, exposed to Hal, the... Hal's uh, grief counselor with the tiny hands. Right. I, mm. I can't have been like young almost, enough. Almost James O's age, right? They couldn't have been young enough to have been exposed to the, to the. That's true, man. I so, don't know what that so means. So I'm so confused about the time. Yeah. Huh. Unless David Foster Wallace is just assuming the world, you know, from like 1900 on was just a mucky pit of uh, I mean that's not horrible not a wrong chemicals. Assumption. It's not it's not a <laughs> wrong assumption. So perhaps he just exaggerated it to Yeah. That it was much worse and that's why that that annular fusion would have been perhaps seen as a remedy for some of that. Right. Even though perhaps it isn't uh yeah. in the end. But you know you know one of the uh, one of the things that I've learned from listening to kind of junk history podcasts is uh, that the invention of the automobile, like the introduction of the automobile in big cities, uh-huh. was at the time um, a solution to a really serious ecological problem. Hmm. Uh, and and that in a lot of ways it allowed cities to continue to exist and averted an ecological crisis, um, hmm. because and now it is an ecological and, and now it crisis. is. So it's like yeah, the the, the cure is the disease. But it, it, at the time, there were so many horse carts in cities that like horse horse waste, manure, horse manure, manure and, and, horse... And, and like dead livestock in the streets. Right. Uh, what was was there was so much of it, and there was nowhere to put it, and there was no right. way to move things at scale. Right. Um, they they polluted water supplies, and they so made people, streets unnavigable. So people unwittingly said, "Oh my gosh, look at these cars! We can get this around is, yeah. without having any bad uh, yeah and, and, emissions. And so it, no so it, so no bad emissions. Because, like, look at that. Because yeah, so because like in in cities." having a city full of cars is better for the environment than having a city full of horses. Horse manure. It's just, it's just not, it's not better enough to be a solution in the long term. (laughs) Right. Because instead of methane, we have lead. Yeah. In the air. Mm -hmm. Carbon monoxide. Carbon monoxide. Progress is such a weird thing. Progress is because you make choices based on what you know at the time, which mm-hmm. turns out to be all wrong, and mm-hmm. turns out that you're poisoning things worse than you than they were poisoned to before. You know, with the right. advent of the car taking over the horse issue, it's like there was just an article in the Coloradoan about the big um, um, is it twelve story or thirteen story. Uh, building downtown Fort Collins that's attached to the First National Bank. You know know what I mean. Mm. Uh, Down sort of Mason Street area, downtown area, 
uh, they were doing, they were updating their heating and cooling system and disturbed stuff. And the whole place has been shut down for months and will be shut oh, down it like for years. It's asbestos. It's oh. an asbestos. Mm. Every single thing. They call it an asbestos spill, but uh, oh. we were talking about it at grandma's house the other day with your dad, and we were talking about, yeah, people used asbestos. It was built in the 60s. It was it was like the best thing. You would build this big, tall, yeah. yes, you would build this people big, tall building to... because then it would be fireproof. Right. Mm-hmm. So you people, have this big, it, tall building. People, and, people used it to decorate Christmas trees. You could get asbestos snow to sprinkle sweet. on your Christmas tree because it wouldn't sweet. burn. Right, it doesn't oh, burn, yeah. it's non-flammable. So it was like the answer to building these big, tall buildings that could be considered fire traps. Well, you don't have to worry because they've used asbestos. So when they when they uh, detected asbestos in this building, then they, te- then they have to test everything. Uh, the ceiling panels mm. have asbestos. The uh, drywall mud uh, has asbestos. All the heating pipes are wrapped with asbestos. The materials uh. under the tile in the floors have asbestos. It's everywhere. Oh my Every, oh no. Everywhere on every floor. Mm-hmm. Everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so much for being a great idea, right? Yeah. So now they're spending hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. I assume they just have to gut the place. And they mm. claim... That because they weren't working on the bank itself, they weren't replacing anything, that no asbestos was disturbed there and the air quality is fine and they've sealed it off from the rest of the building. <laughs> Your dad was like, yeah, I think I'd be looking for another job if I worked there. Yeah. yeah. So it is yeah. there. Of course it's there. It's everywhere. It's everywhere, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Which brings us back around to the book because uh, John N. R. Wayne is from an asbestos mining town in Canada. Oh yeah. They also mentioned John Wayne in another part where they're talking about how uh, the ten all the tennis academies have to have a psychologist or a counselor or somebody on oh, the right. staff because mm-hmm. because everyone's just broken by this whole yeah. question of uh, trying to succeed. It says, and then, says the, only, the only players who can win their way to the top and stay there without going bats are the ones who are already, already bats, bats. Or, or else machines. who seem to be just, uh, just, just be grim machines, yeah, a la John like, Wayne. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, John Wayne. He keeps Sounds popping about right. up. Yeah. So there's another mystery. What is it with John Wayne? What is it yeah, with I don't know. James O's fascination with the John Waynes of the world? <laughs> The, the other thing that disturbs me about the book is that I fear that my questions will never be answered. But yeah, it's certainly possible. There's yes. this whole thread of anti-con- anti-confluentialism that yes. runs through the book. Yes. So. Yeah, yeah. Oh, but have faith. Well, mm. <laughs> all right, I'll try. Does anyone have anything they'd like to announce or plug? If you are interested in checking me out and my paintings, can do that on Instagram. I'm at CardboardVV. If you want to watch my experimental short documentary, Jesse, it's a, a conversation about resentment based on a dream I had in 2014. You can do that at agingrick.com. Uh, hmm. I also have a new Instagram account at CoffeeStopFix. CoffeeStopFix, uh, where I'm posting some of my film photography developed in instant coffee. Oh. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. I don't understand Instagram. So there you go. Do you have Do you have the app on your phone? Yeah, I think so. Are you logged into it? Oh, Norma. What? We will help you. Yeah, okay. I'm pretty sure you do have an Instagram because I just saw you on Instagram and friended you. Yeah. Oh, it's true. Oh. You do. Yeah. See, I'm totally witless. I think I, I need friended training. you on Instagram. Let me. I. Hmm. Excuse me. It's following. Oh, oh following. shoot. Oh, okay. Thank you. Thank you so following. much. <laughs> I get emails occasionally that say, oh, you haven't you haven't checked in with your Instagram. And then I click on whatever that is. And then I see what it's people like, have so posted. It's, it's like Facebook, but I find it. I really like it, actually. I find it very low pressure. Um, hmm. you just kind of, and it's, it's, it's all image based. Appealing, I think. Yeah. yeah. So, so like I follow people I know on Instagram and when I, when I open up the app, it just shows me their latest pictures that they've posted and I can scroll through them and push the little heart icon if I like them. And that's, that's kind of it. Yep. Yeah. That's all you do. You look well, at pictures. So I should just yeah. try it. If you, if you open up the app, it will probably suggest that you follow me. Uh, because I followed you, and and I think it knows not much that, to follow on me. I haven't ever well, posted anything. Well, you should. <laughs> yeah, it's a really good place to post cat photos. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, hmm. yeah. Pictures Instagram of pets. Likes cats. Um, I a lot of my Instagram feed is just pictures of birds. Do you have huh. a separate Instagram feed from your cardboard VV? No, no, I don't. Yeah, I oh, just okay. have the cardboard. What okay. is the? I don't think look. I've ever seen anything other than your paintings on there. Yeah. How come I can't see it on my phone? Like, what would what's it look like? What's the? Instagram? It looks like a little white outline of a camera on sort of a, a rainbow gradient background, or a like a yeah mm-hmm. red to orange gradient background. Mm-hmm. It it's possible there. that you don't have the app installed. Oh, that could be. So I just go to the. You just get it from the app store and log okay. in with your Facebook account. Okay. Well, maybe it, maybe that can be my. It's fun. I think that you would really like it. Hmm. It's stupid not to know how to do Instagram. I realize, but. I yeah. you know I didn't have an Instagram for so long, and the reason is that I signed up for Instagram in like two thousand six or something. And, and then I never used my account. And so uh-huh. I got locked out of it. And, oh. and in, in the intervening time, Facebook bought Instagram. And, um, and because my old locked out account was connected to my Facebook account, it wouldn't oh. let me create a new one. At oh. any time I tried, it would just be like, sorry, goodbye. And, and oh. I couldn't. There's no way to contact Instagram support. They don't have like a public facing support department, which I think is Mm. incredibly stupid. Um, Mm -hmm. But it just wouldn't let me do it. But finally, they they did some kind of update to their database and let me in. Um, So that's the story of why I have an Instagram now and didn't before. It's about time. Huh. Yeah. Well, I should I should make a note to myself that I should try to figure it out. So that I'm not, yeah. you know, just stumbling about. I also you can have see Vinny's decide- paintings on there. You know, that's the, yeah. one of my favorite All things about Vinny's it. I've seen Vinny's paintings. That- I saw Vinny's paintings. I looked for Vinny. Was that on Instagram where I saw them? I don't know how uh, I saw it them. Might be, yeah, it might be or Facebook might been, as well. I looked for it. I searched for them somehow. Yeah. <laughs> oh. 
<laughs> I like Yay, thank you. Oh, yes. thanks. Yes. Next week, we'll be talking about pages 442 to 470. Our music is by David Nichols. You can listen to his podcast, The Land of Random, on Spotify. Thanks for listening. And remember, although you might be tempted, you can't compare this kind of insidious enslaving process to your little cases of sugar and soup. says, if you actually hook up with those young people, you tell them hello from me and stay safe out there. <laughs> That's oh. grandma.